0: I took a little bit of a hiatus from speaking for about six weeks, but it was so awesome that we could have so many different voices at the table sharing with you this summer as we've been walking through this series, Songs of Summer, and as we've been diving into the Psalms. so uh, I also appreciate the opportunity to do a little bit of vacation as well as to get to work on different aspects of what's happening in the Cross Point community as we gear up towards the fall. Uh, hey, listen, if you have your Bibles handy this morning, get you to turn with me to Psalm 133. We're going to be walking through that. This morning. Uh, But before we go any further, uh, I have an important update for you this morning. I want to announce and let you know that we are going to be reopening our doors for in person gatherings starting Sunday, September the 13th. Applause across the world, and there was much rejoicing. All right, so like before, we're going to have two time slots. We're going to have a 9 a.m., we're going to have a 11 a.m., and of course, the details about this are going to be pouring out this week, but let me just give you a couple of highlights. Uh, During each of these time slots, we are going to have two spaces available on site. So the first space is going to be the the standard space where we've always gathered as our adult community here in the worship center, of course, with physical distancing uh, going on. But the second space is going to be located in Simpson Hall. So we're not going to be having our spot-on kids ministry as we had always had it. Uh, temporarily, uh, we're going to be setting up this family-friendly environment, which is going to allow greater freedom to move around, to make noise, uh, to engage in, uh, help kids engage in a way that's better suited to their developmental needs. So we're going to be uh, having that located, like I said, in Simpson Hall. Uh, of course, there's going to be physically distanced tables, setups, and we're going to be live-streaming our worship gathering from here in the main auditorium uh, into Simpson Hall so people can participate in worship in that way. And of course, it goes without saying that we are going to have our third space, which is our uh, live stream for those of you who choose to worship with us from home. Now, of course, you know, you're going to have all sorts of questions. And again, this is just a preliminary announcement. We're going to be having details rolling out in the next couple of weeks about what this is exactly going to look like. We're going to have a lot of question and answer types of, uh, uh, sheets available for you to look at. Um, But let me just say, I mean, we're going to be following all the requirements from AHS um, to ensure that we have a safe uh, and healthy space here for you when you do come and participate. So looking forward to that, that we can gather and incarnate as the people of God to physically gather together and worship uh, starting Sunday, September the 13th. So mark the date on your calendar. All right. Hey, let's dive into this week's message. Uh, Today, like I said, we're going to be doing a deep dive in Psalm 133, but before I get there, let me give you a little bit of a background on this psalm. First of all, it's important to understand that Psalm 133 is what's called a song of ascent, and there are 15 of these found in the book of Psalms. Songs of ascent were essentially the songs that the pilgrims of Israel would have sang on their way towards the feasts and the festivals of Israel. So, the reason why it's called a song of ascent is because Jerusalem was located on Mount Zion. And so, to get to Jerusalem, they had to ascend the mountain uh, to, to get up there. So, they were ascending together towards worship. And this would have been one of the songs that would, they would have sung together as they made their journey. Interestingly, Psalm 133 is also one of the shortest Psalms in the Bible. Uh, but even though it's short, it is packed with all sorts of meaning. And, and I think as we get into it, what you're going to discover today is that this psalm is actually super relevant for us in the day and age in which we live. Because the theme of this psalm is the blessing of unity. And I think most of us are agree that more than ever, we live in, in what we would call divided times. I mean, social media is swamped with like, virtue signaling and canceling and trolling and arguing. Uh, we're experiencing polarization all over the place, politically, culturally, even even religiously. Uh, there's disagreement about what do we do about COVID-19. You know, where do we go? How do we meet? Do we wear masks? Do we not? Etc. Etc. Uh, but in all of this, what we find is that the world is pressing in on the church and the world is trying to mold us into its image. So I'm hoping this morning that this psalm, will be a timely message for us as we talk about the blessings of unity. Hey, so let's just dive right in. We're going to start right at verse 1. Let me read it for you this morning. Here's what it says. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So, so I think the first question we have to answer is, who is this psalm actually talking about? So who are the brothers who dwell in unity? And, and are they like, like actual real siblings? Is that what it's talking about this morning? <clears throat> well, keeping in mind that all those people who were singing the songs of ascent as they were going up to Jerusalem were, in fact, related. They were part of one big family. They were all from the bloodline of Abraham. And so when it says brothers, it actually should mean brethren. They're were, they were actually singing about themselves living together in unity. Now, I try to imagine, and I want us to imagine this morning, what this would have actually been like to, to make that journey up to Jerusalem. I, I can imagine that, that keeping unity would have been a huge challenge for them on these days. Uh, I mean, it, it would have been a narrow path, a narrow road. It's crowded with throngs of people and carts and donkeys and livestock. I, I try to envision that it's probably like the number two highway Uh, going from Edmonton to Calgary on a Friday afternoon during the summer, right? You know what that's like, congested traffic, people driving in the wrong lane, these huge motorhomes thinking they own the road, right? Uh, Rubbernecking and tailgating and people flipping each other the bird, right? Everyone is in a hurry to get to their destination, but nobody is getting anywhere fast. And then, of course, when these pilgrims arrived in Jerusalem, keep in mind, there were no hotels for them. There was no super eight. There was no ramada. They actually had to stay with family members in very small houses. And we all know what that's like when a family comes to visit. I mean, they demand your attention. they, They eat your food. They sit in your favorite chair. And you love them when they're with you, but you're also glad to see them leave, especially if they've overstayed their welcome. Around the Chartrand home, we have a very special statement that we say. We say, families like fish. It starts to stink after three days. So, okay, the pilgrims, they sang this song, and the reason why they sang this song on the road to Zion was a reminder and a promise to them. Behold, behold how good and, and pleasant it is when brothers live together or dwell together in unity. So so why does unity matter? Well, you'll notice the psalmist actually gives us two reasons in the the text. He says, on the one hand, it's good, and on the other hand, it's pleasant. So let me break each of these down for you. First of all, it's pleasant. The Hebrew word here for pleasant means delightful, enjoyable, pleasurable. Um, This is actually the payoff of unity. It's the result of unity. See, the strange thing about unity is so often we can take it for granted. I mean, we don't really know how good unity is until we, in fact lose it. I mean, when people are unified, we never think to ourselves, wow, we're unified. Like, we're on the same page. We're we're going in the same direction today. It's not until everything falls apart and unravels and goes horribly wrong that we actually realize the benefit and the value of truly being unified. You see, unity is pleasant, but disunity is painful. And sadly, I think for many of us, family can be a place of great disunity. I mean, siblings squabble, parents fight. Um, Many of us know this firsthand. There's an old saying that goes, family breeds content. In other words, uh, sometimes we take family for granted, and we think that we can abuse them because we assume that they're always going to be there for us. I think a great illustration of this is the movie Knives Out, which came out last year, and it's a great example of painful family disunity. It's the story of this this wealthy novelist, Harlan Thrombey, and he invites his family for his 85th birthday party. And then the next morning, his housekeeper finds him dead in his room with his throat cut. Kind of gross, but uh, the rest of the movie is essentially a a modern-day whodunit mystery to find out who the murderer was of of, uh, Harlan Thrombey. So, so, so a detective gets involved, and the detective just begins to interview a number of different family members about where they were and, and, and where, what happened that night. And so you, do, you soon discover, as he's interviewing all of these family members, just how terrible the Thromby family is. It's not hard to imagine that any one of them could have actually been the murderer. They're corrupt. They're contemptible. Their relationships with each other are, are defined by cheating and sponging and lying and stealing and backstabbing. And it turns out, as it turns out, the only one person of good character in the movie is Thromby's nurse. And she's not even a family member. As a matter of fact, she's the only person who has a good relationship with Thromby before he dies. Well, I guess you're wondering this morning, who was it? Who was the one who actually killed Thromby? Well, let me tell you. It was Colonel Mustard. And it was in the library. And it was with a candlestick. No, that's not true. Uh, I'm not going to tell you. If you want to find out the answer to that, you need to watch the movie yourself. I'm not going to spoil the ending. But let me share one realization from the movie. And this is just in the backs of everybody's minds as they're watching. You would much rather be a servant than a family member in this household. Disunity is painful, but unity is pleasant. It's pleasurable. But, but the, the psalmist goes even further, and he says that unity is not just pleasurable or pleasant. He says that unity is, in fact, good. You know, it's interesting that, that Hebrew word there, good, is, is the same word that's used by God when he creates the heavens and the earth, the entire universe. I mean, in Genesis 1, uh, God created the light, and he said it was good. He created the earth, he said it was good. He created everything living on the planet, and he said it was good. And then when he was done, he backed off, and he looked at it all, and he says, it's, it's very good see, unity is good, not because we think it's good or because it produces good results. We're not, unity isn't good only when it conveniences us or it benefits us. Unity is good because God has made it good. It is good within itself. It is intrinsically good. Now, as believers in Christ, we have all been adopted into one great big spiritual family through our faith in Christ Jesus. We are all sons and daughters of the King. We are all family members. And so this text has so much to say to us, the people of God, the family of God. Unity is good. Unity is pleasant. Well, let's continue reading. Verse 2. Here's what it says. It, It, unity, is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. So what it's saying, it seems to be saying, is that unity is like oil that's running down your face. And I think for many of us, that, that, that doesn't seem like a very enticing image. I mean, for me, it brings to mind grease running down my face as I bite into a delicious double whopper with cheese and bacon. I mean, I'm talking sloppy meat juice, fatty cheese, and slick mayonnaise running down my face and dripping onto my hoodie. It's delicious. But maybe, maybe, maybe something's lost in translation here uh, this morning. What did the original people understand when they sang these verses? Well, in Israel, in that day, oil was essential. Now, that's not to be confused with essential oil, because this oil actually works, okay? You see, everything in that day was hot and dry and dusty and arid. So people actually used oil on a regular basis to moisten their skin. It was refreshing, it was invigorating. If you went to anybody's house, they would offer you oil to put on your face because oil was just a a mainstay of life. But but in that day and age, oil actually had another purpose. Oil was used to anoint kings and priests and and sometimes even prophets. And who was Aaron? Well, Aaron was the first priest of Israel. He was Moses' brother-in-law. And before Aaron stepped into his new role, God commanded in the Torah that Aaron should first be anointed with a special oil, a precious oil. And and this oil was was so special, so, so precious, God says this oil should only be used on the priesthood and on the tabernacle. So on the sacred items and the sacred people of God. So... This wasn't a secret recipe with like 11 herbs and spices. As a matter of fact, you can actually find the formula for this oil in Exodus chapter 30. If you want to go there a little bit later, you want to make your own essential oil, you can go there, okay? Um, However, uh, God said to his people, nobody is allowed to make this oil the only people who are allowed to make this oil are the priests because it's sacred it's precious it's special it's only meant to be used on them so the imagery here of this precious oil running down on Aaron's beard it's representing God's holy anointing see when you anointed something you set it apart you set it apart for God's special purposes and and the oil symbolizes God's favor it symbolizes God's God's blessing So this is what it means. When we dwell together in unity as God's family, when we walk together in unity, God favors us. God blesses us, which actually moves us right into the next verse, verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded his blessing, life forevermore. Now, now, Hermon was this mountain towering in, in northern Israel. In fact, it's the only snow-capped mountain in all of Israel. And, of course, from the months of April through October, uh, Israel was, was super dry, super, super dry, so that uh, it, it was, it was a, almost a barren desert. So one of the ways that plant the only way that plants actually survived in that day, in that time, in that season, was when the dew would come in the middle of the night and kind of drench all of the, plants on the countryside, where did this dew come from? Well, the dew actually came from Mount Hermon, which was in the north, from the snow-capped peaks, would fall in the middle of the night, and would provide for refreshment. It was life-giving, and that's how good and pleasant unity actually is. It's refreshing and life-giving. Now, the, the psalm actually ends by reminding the pilgrims of where this blessing comes from. Remember, these pilgrims are heading up to Jerusalem, uh, to Mount Zion. And what's at Mount Zion? What's in Jerusalem? This is where God's temple is. This is where, I mean, it's mind-blowing. But at that time, God's blessing flows to all the nations of the world through just this one geographical point. It's this thin space between heaven and earth in that place. God chooses to dwell in Jerusalem. And he's reminding them as they go up, that's where they're heading. And you probably noticed in the text that the oil and the dew, both of them, use imagery of descending. They are, they are coming down to God's people from above. So meanwhile, while God's people are ascending, God's blessing is descending on them. But it's only happening as they dwell together in unity. See, it wasn't enough that there were family members. It wasn't a mouth that they just decided they're going to go off on this religious pilgrimage together. What mattered was how they made the journey, not just that they made the journey. So God only commanded a blessing upon them as they did it together in harmony, in unity. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. So I think if there's there's anything that's just abundantly clear this morning, it's it's how important unity is for the family of God. How important it is to God and how important it is to us. And so the question I want to ask is, well, what does this mean for us? I mean, what, what, are, the, what are the takeaways that we can take away from this psalm? Well, the first one is this. The first one is that, that unity reflects God's nature. See, the reason why unity is good is, is because God is good. And unity reflects God's very self, his nature. And we see this in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Um, This is known as the upper room discourse. Jesus has just finished the Last Supper. He hasn't yet gone to be betrayed and to be arrested. And he's teaching his disciples in this upper room discourse. At the end of his teaching time with his disciples, he decides to pray. He prays for himself and he prays that he would be glorified in in the coming days and what lies ahead. He prays for his disciples, that God would protect them. He prays that God would make them holy in the days ahead and after Jesus has departed. And then, the most amazing thing happens. Jesus prays for you. And Jesus prays for me. Let's look at the text. John chapter 17, verse 20. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about the disciples. But I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, but that, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me me. So, so Jesus is, is, is looking ahead through human history, and he's thinking about all of the followers, all the generations of followers who would believe in him in the years to come. <clears throat> and what is his prayer for them? What is the one prayer that he has for the people of God, for the family of God, the church, that they would be one? That they would be one. But, but the, here's the thing. The thing about unity is that it reflects God's very nature. See, here's the thing about God. God Himself is unified. And God is a plurality in unity. Think about it God is Father, He's Son, and He's Holy Spirit. And these three persons of the Trinity live together in perfect loving community throughout eternity. God Himself is unified. And so notice what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, I want them to be unified, okay? I want them to be one, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So Jesus is praying. He's saying, "Listen, I'm praying that my future followers will be united together in the same way, Father, that you and I are united together. I mean, think about that. That is a high bar for unity. That is a high calling for us in unity. That's how important it is to God. And, and Jesus, it's interesting, he even, he even provides a blessing. He, he pronounces a blessing that what will happen when we come together in unity. He says that the world will know that we're the people of God, loved by God. That the world will know and they'll understand who Jesus is and who we truly are. And this happens as a byproduct, as a result of us walking together in unity. See, I mean, nobody wants to be part of a group of people who don't get along. Right? I mean, I mean, nobody wants to spend time in a knives-out kind of environment. Have you ever gone to a friend's house where uh, family members fight all the time? It's awkward. I mean, I, I grew up with these, with these brothers, and uh, I, whenever I went to their house, I mean, they got along for maybe 20 minutes, and then it was knives-out. I mean, there was fighting. You know what they did when they fought? They had spit fights. So (laughs) like, big horky, right? Or they'd flick spit at each other, right? And so I'm there in the room, the spits start flying. I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to be here. I just want to go home, okay? Nobody wants to be with other people when the knives are out. It's only when we dwell together in unity that we reflect God's image, this plurality and unity to the world. Then the world will know who we truly are. That's the first takeaway. Here's the second unity includes difference. See, it's really important to understand that unity is not the same as uniformity. Uniformity is when everybody looks the same, they talk the same, they dress the same, they think exactly the same. They're in this echo box, this echo chamber. That's not what the vision of biblical unity actually looks like. Remember, God is not just unity. He is a plurality in unity. God is Father, He's Son, and He's Holy Spirit. These are three distinct persons with distinct roles and functions, and yet they live together in perfect unity throughout eternity. And in the same way, the family of God is a plurality in unity. See, the reality is there's always going to be great diversity in the body of Christ. This is the beautiful thing about the body of Christ. Is that we welcome people from every background, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done, you can come to the cross, you can come to Christ, you can be transformed, and you can be part of the body and still be you. This was God's plan from the beginning. It's spelled out, let, let me give you an example, Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. It says, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we are, we are a plurality in unity. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We're part of one family. We're part of one body. We're part of one kingdom. And yet, there's this, there's this beautiful kaleidoscope of diversity within this oneness. Different races, different genders, different social economic statuses. And yet, we can still come together as one family. Let me give you another quick example. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where it speaks about being the body of Christ. Paul is talking to the church, and he says, But as it is, God arranged the members in the body each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So we're one body, but this body has many different members, right? Hands, feet, elbows, and armpits. I bet you're wondering who the armpit is. Each member is different, but they're still part of one body. There's this, there's this plurality and unity. Now, Sometimes, this, is, this can also include differences of opinions. See, so, so the truth of the matter is we face issues every day to which there are no clear answers. Like, 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 why do bumblebees fly? Why does sour cream have an expiration date? Why is there only one word in the English language for thesaurus? I mean, consider this question. Which is the best way to cook a ham? I, I'm sure you've probably heard the story about the husband who decided he would question his wife's culinary skills. Dangerous business, that is. See, whenever she cooked a ham, she'd cut off both ends of the ham. she put it in the pot, she'd throw it into the oven. And one day he asks her, this was early on in their marriage, why do you cut off both ends of the ham before you cook it? And she says, that's just the way I do it. She disagreed with them, and this kind of became a sore spot in their marriage. Until finally, one day, when he asked her again, she says, Listen, I cut off both ends of the ham because that's how my mom cut off both ends of the ham. I think it helps retain the moisture in the ham. And he thought, I don't know if that's true. I was kind of curious. So the next family reunion, he decided to corner her mother, his mother-in-law. And he asked her, Listen, why do you cut off both ends of the ham? And her response to him was, Well, I don't know. That's the way my mom always did it. So he walks across the room to Grandma, and he asks her the question. He says, can you tell me, why is it that you cut off both ends of the ham? And Grandma says, oh, well, that's easy, dear. You see, I grew up during the Great Depression, and during the Great Depression, we only had one pot, and it was a very small pot. And the only way to get the ham to fit into the pot was to cut off both ends of it. And that's how we cooked the ham. So, what is the right way to cook a ham? The answer to the question is, I don't know. And does it really matter at the end of the day? As the early church expanded from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth, it was constantly confronted with many new issues and many new dilemmas. And and some of these dilemmas, they they just didn't have clear answers to. And so I love how Paul responded to these differences that were happening in the body of Christ. Because it seems like people were getting pretty amped up about some of these differences. And you can read it in Romans chapter 14. I'll just just read the first few verses. Here's what it says. It says, As for one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. I mean, one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Down the first five. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Listen, if you get a chance this week... To read Romans 14, I, I would ask you to do it. I, like, please do it. Because I think Romans 14 uh, is, is one of the texts for the church during this time. When everything is flux, when everything seems chaotic, and there seems to be no clear answers, and we're trying to figure out how do we behave together as the people of God, Romans 14 is your jam. Okay, let me just encourage you to go there. But one of the key takeaways of Romans chapter 14 is just simply this. There will often be divisions and, and opinions in the body of Christ. And that's okay. What, 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 which means that we're not always going to find clear and cut and dry answers to every single issue that comes up. Notice that word in verse 1, opinions. In, if you're reading from the NIV, it's disputable matters. There will be differences of opinion over some issues. So that's the first takeaway, but the second takeaway is really, really simple. We shouldn't quarrel over these things. We shouldn't fight over these differences. Now, This doesn't mean that we should just embrace relativism and that agree together that all truth is just subjective. You know, that it doesn't matter what you believe or how you live. You know, as long as you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe and we'll all just get along and we'll all be good, right? The existence of differences doesn't mean that every idea is equally valid or true. We believe, as, as the people of God, that all people are equally valuable. But that doesn't mean every idea is equally valuable. There are actually some pretty dumb ideas out there, like saying you should drink disinfectant to fight coronavirus, for example. Okay, So as, as followers of Jesus, we are going to uphold many fundamental truths and values and beliefs and behaviors. And these are essential. These are, these, are, these are non-negotiable. This is why the Bible talks about false teachers and false prophets and sound doctrine and false teaching, okay? There is truth. We believe in truth. We embrace truth. You know, I, I think a helpful way to frame this is to talk about what we would call primary, secondary, and tertiary beliefs. So some beliefs are just primary. They're, they're first-order kinds of belief. They're the non-negotiables. They're the hills to die on for faith and practice. Here's one example. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, for the church and for the believers in Christ, this is like the primary doctrine to believe in the resurrection. But then there are these like secondary beliefs, which are really important. But they're not so concrete. You might have great opinions and arguments on either side. But these are not hills to die on. And then finally, below that, there's like tertiary or, or third order kinds of belief. Like, how many angels do you think can dance on the end of a pin? You ever thought about it? The answer is 17. And I'm right. Okay. So... Listen, here's the thing. is When you get down to like the second or the third levels, you are going to encounter more and more difference. And Romans 14 says, we shouldn't quarrel over these things, over these disputable matters. Sure, dialogue about them. Think critically about them. But don't let them break up the band, okay? There are, there are a lot of things that we can quarrel about during COVID-19. We can argue about whether we should wear face masks or we shouldn't wear face masks. We can, do we sing? Don't we sing? Do we worship online? Do we worship in person? Do we send our kids back to school or do we homeschool our kids? Do we protect the vulnerable or do we propel the economy? And let me tell you, I mean, we live in divided times. Let me bring this full circle. And can I just say that, that, that I am greatly concerned that the church at large is being strongly influenced. And pulled along by our culture's values. And that the, mo- the, tr- the world will mold us into its image if we are not wise and if we are not careful. We-, we are being shaped by polarization south of the border. We've been shaped by postmodern deconstruction that's happening all around us. So we like to lob truth bombs at the opposition. We demonize those who think differently. Listen, let me tell you, it is really easy to deconstruct. It is really easy to tear things down. But it takes stronger character and concern to build things up. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a demolitions expert. I want to be a builder. I want to be a construction person. Crosspoint, I think God is calling us to be someone who's different. He's calling us to be subversive to the culture. To live as people united under Christ. To be salt and light to a world that is floundering. And so the question is, and the final question is, well, how do we do that? And here's the third takeaway. Is unity takes work. It takes work. And Apostle Paul writes about this in Ephesians 4. Here's what he says. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Who are we called? We're the people of God. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, and there's one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let Let me just start with an observation and state the obvious here. This text gives us hooks to hang our unity on. Spiritual realities that will anchor us and that will rally us, And we can unite together around these. These are the the why of unity. The reasons why we are united as the people of God. But did you notice in the text there's also the how of unity? See, unity happens and only happens through hard work. And it happens when we take on the character and the posture of Jesus. Jesus was humble. He was gentle. He was patient. He was unified within himself. And in fact, these are the four postures of unity that that I want to seek out myself, and I want to call us towards. Humility is a posture of accepting your weaknesses and limitations. It comes from appropriate understanding of who God is and who I am. There is a God, and I'm not Him. And so if I'm walking in humility, I understand that I might not be right all the time, that I don't have all the answers. That I am not the final arbiter of what's right and what's true. So, when you're walking in humility, you you have this posture. Gentleness is about your posture towards others. Gentleness means, means having a soft touch. It means being willing to show mercy to people who are failing. To be gentle with people and be willing to listen and to learn from them. What's the opposite of gentle? It's brutal. Brutal. And this is someone who has to be right, somebody who wants justice, somebody who is the worst kind of troll on social media. That's not us. Patience means being willing, being slow to react or respond with anger or retaliation. It means being willing to endure trials or pain. A person who's patient will put up with a lot of stuff from a lot of people, and they're bearing with one another in love. And the final posture is an eagerness for unity. An eagerness. You know what eagerness is like? Like, you know, you're coming home and you're really hangry, right? And nothing's going to get between you and the refrigerator door. I mean, that's eagerness. When I'm eager for something, I'm going after it. I'm willing to work for it. I don't wait for it to come to me. I'm going towards it. Let me ask you, cross point this morning. Are you eager for unity? Do you look for it? Are you ready to pursue it? Are you willing to do the hard work that it takes to be a unified people? So cross point, what if we lived differently? What if we were subversive? What if we were countercultural? What if we were a people who were not defined by tearing the world down to see it burned, but a people to see, who want to build the world up to see it flourish? And so cross point, may we put on Jesus? May we walk together with humility and gentleness and patience and the pursuit of unity. And may God command his blessings over us as we do just that. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Oh Jesus, we so long for you to... Um, infuse in us your very character. We want to be molded, and we want to be shaped by you and not by the world. We want to be Jesus, the hands and the feet and the voice of Jesus and the character of Jesus. And so, God, we long for you to break our hearts, to transform us. And we repent this morning, Lord, when we have not shown you and we've not treated others correctly. Lord, we pray that you would transform us as the people of God to be unified together under you and for you. We thank you for for inviting us into this, empowering us to do it, and blessing us as we walk in obedience. We give you thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.